We are up to mitzvah number 106. And this is another really interesting mitzvah that relates to the temple service. And this is the hand and feet washing of the Kohanim. In the temple, in the tabernacle, there was a tior, a laver. This is a copper basin full of water with spigots in every direction. There were two. Eventually, they added 10 more. There were 12 spigots. It was located between the outer altar and the entrance of the sanctuary. So, of course, there's two altars. There's a massive, what's called a copper altar, the outer altar, and that was outside the sanctuary. And upon that altar, all the sacrifices were offered. And then there was the inner altar, the golden altar, upon which it was exclusively the incense, the ketores. So between the outer altar and the entrance of the sanctuary was this kior, was this laver, copper basin, full of water. And any Kohen who entered the sanctuary, and of course only Kohanim were allowed to enter, they must first wash their hands and feet. Similarly, any Kohen who wanted to perform work service in the temple must first wash his hands and feet. And the way this was done... In the temple, everyone was barefoot. Can't walk in with your shoes. So you would take your right hand and put it on your right foot and your left hand and put it on your left foot. And then the water would be released from the kior. And while you're standing, you can't do it sitting. In fact, all service in the temple must be done while standing. You wash the hands, you washed the feet, and now you are primed, you're allowed to enter the sanctuary and do the work. If a Kohen fails to do this, if a Kohen fails to properly wash their hands and feet before entering the sanctuary and before doing any work, this was a very severe violation and it carries with it capital punishment, not by a human court, but by heaven. Now, although we don't, as of the date of this recording, we don't have a temple, there are mitzvahs that we have today, rabbinic mitzvahs, that stem from this biblical commandment. And that is the washing of hands that appears in many places in our life. You could even say that we're obsessed with hand washing after using the bathroom, after touching something dirty, after visiting a cemetery, when you wake up in the morning or in the early afternoon if you are a teenager, before you eat, before you make an after-blessing, before praying. There are all kinds of scenarios where there would be rabbinic mitzvahs requiring you to wash your hands in a way that's connected or related to the biblical mitzvah that applied only in the temple and only for the kohanim. Now, the requirement to wash your hands is not merely Hygienic, it has spiritual underpinnings as we shall yet see. Now the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to navigate the mitzvahs, he explains the rationale or a rationale behind every mitzvah. And he tells us that the reason why the Kohanim have to wash their hands and their feet in the temple before doing any service, it's out of respect. There has to be reverence. There has to be awe of the temple if they realize that this is a special place, this is a holy place, this is a designated place of God, 
And therefore, before you do anything, before you do any work, wash your hands, wash your feet in order to prepare. The Ramban, in his comment to Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, this is the verse that talks about the washing of the hands and feet, he adds some more color to this idea. And he says, you know, if you were the waiter, you're the waiter, or you're working in the kitchen for the king, and there's all this special dainty food, and the wine of the king, everyone's always washing their hands, because the hands get dirty, and you want to have absolute cleanliness for the food of of the of the king. And that's why, similarly, if God, the king of all kings, is residing in the temple, you follow the same pattern. Now, why do you wash your feet? Your hands are always touching things that get dirty, as we know. What about the feet? So he tells us that the Kohanim, they would work barefoot in the temple. And some people, he tells us, some people, they have sweaty and smelly feet. That's what the Ramban says. And therefore, again, in order to maintain the dignity and the standing and the stature of this location, the feet are cleaned as well. And then he adds some Kabbalistic ideas. He talks about when you raise your hands, then your hands and your feet are your furthest extremities. And when you wash your hands, it somehow relates to the ten sephiros, which I know nothing about, very Kabbalistic. But there are obviously other Kabbalistic ideas featured here. I did see the Kabbalists say something else intriguing. They say that we know in our body there's there's a soul. And the soul is this unadulterated force of holiness and power and purity. But the body is kind of a battleground because the soul, of course, is there and the soul is this overpowering force of holiness. But there are all sorts of other forces, impure force forces, trying to encroach. Which is why, of course, when someone dies and their soul has exited the body, the body becomes the absolute peak of impurity because nature abhors a vacuum. If there is a vacuum, a spiritual vacuum in the body, and the soul is not there to keep all those other forces at bay, well, what enters? All these other impure forces, and thus the dead body, the cadaver, becomes a breeding grounds for all these impure forces. Now we know that, the Talmud tells us, we've talked about this in the past, when someone goes to sleep, their soul, to a certain extent, departs. The Talmud says that sleep is a 60th of death. So death is the soul departs completely. When someone sleeps, well, like a 60th of that. Well, when someone, when someone dies, the soul leaves and all forces of impurity find refuge in the body. Sleep is a little bit like that. The soul, to a certain extent, leaves. 
and what fills the space? All kinds of harmful, deleterious, noxious spiritual forces. But of course, if someone is just asleep, they're not dead. And when they wake up, well, the soul's back. And what happens to all those spiritual impurities that had squatted inside the body overnight? The soul arrives and they scram and they flee in all directions. And they end up in the extremities. They go to the furthest parts of the body, which is the hands and the feet. The Kabbalists add that uh, the Talmud tells us, this is something which is very strange for us to picture, Adam and Eve, prior to their sin, their whole bodies was covered in fingernail material. And that served like as a Kevlar, as a protection. And that would thwart all the forces of impurity. And then, once they sinned, they lost it. And then it came exposed. And it was dark. And they were terrified. They felt very vulnerable. They felt very naked. And then... Adam was given fire and he was scanning his whole body to see where's my protection. And he found there was just a little bit left on the fingernails, which is why on Matzah Shabbos, after Shabbos departs, which coincides with the time that darkness arrived for the first time for Adam. And when he was booted from the garden and when he realized that he lost all of his purity and holiness, There is a mitzvah to light a candle and to look at your fingernails. And that mimics what happened to Adam and Eve when they had fire and they started standing their bodies looking for their protection, which was gone. And they were comforted by knowing there's a little bit left at the extremities. That's a little bit of a vestige of Adam and Eve pre-sin. Why are their fingernails, this, again, relic, this vestige of Adam's protection against all these forces, why are they found at the extremities on the fingernails and the toenails? Because these things, and again, very Kabbalistic, these things, they thwart all those forces. And where do those forces congregate? Those forces, those spiritual forces that enter when the soul departs. They congregate at the extremities. And thus the Kabbalists say that absent fingernails, we would have impurity even during the day, even without sleep. Because that's where those forces would coalesce. Thanks to the fingernails, those forces only have a grip on us only at night, only after using the bathroom, etc. And thus, the two forces, the one-two punch of those fingernails and washing the hands, that removes those spiritual impurities. Thus tell us the Kabbalists. Now, the obvious question is, you know, in the temple, the Kohanim would wash their hands and their feet. And again, 
that's where the purity is found. If you're going to walk into the temple, you have to remove those forces of impurity. How come today we don't wash our feet? And the answer, we're told, is that the forces of impurity are much stronger on the feet than on the hands, and therefore washing our feet won't even help. In the temple, with the special tear, the special laver that was made by Moshe, that had special power to remove even the impurity found in the feet. But today, with just water, it can only remove the impurity of the hands, of the, of the, the extremities on our hands, but not of the feet. So that's kind of a modern application of this general principle that we are that we are told here in the Torah. When a Kohen watches the temple, when they do any work in the temple, they must wash their hands and their feet. Now there's an interesting halachic problem featured with this with this vessel, the, the kior, the copper lever that was found in the temple. Any vessel that was used in the temple, anything that was placed inside of it, if it was there overnight, the items that are inside of it are now disqualified for use in the temple the following day. And therefore, because the kiar was a vessel in the temple, any water that was inside of it, if it's overnight, the water has to be spilled out, it has become disqualified. And thus every morning, they would have to empty out the basin and refill it with different water. That was a little bit of of an inconvenience in the temple. Until in the second temple era, an enterprising Kohen Gadol, high priest, invented a muchni. What's a muchni? The word muchni relates to our word that we have today, a machine, a machine. He invented a machine to fix this problem. And the Talmud tells us it was some sort of wheel, some sort of flywheel that would submerge the water into the groundwater and thereby sidestep the problem of disqualifying the water. The exact nature of how this machine worked is disputed. Some say that this was like a certain pipeline, some plumbing, that connected the spouts, the spigots of the laver to subterranean pipelines such that the water would not be stored in the vessel overnight. Others say that you know the spinning wheel would remove the water and submerge it and then bring it back up. I even saw one opinion that says that the whole laver itself would get submerged. It's not so clear, but it's interesting to note that there was a clever solution to a difficult problem with this vessel in the temple. There are some more laws here that are pertinent. If a Kohen washed his hands and feet and then, you know, met someone for lunch outside the temple grounds and would come back in, they would need to wash their hands and feet again. If a Kohen was up overnight, even if they didn't sleep, they would need to wash their hands again. Ideally, this washing had to be done with the with the TR. But if you use a different vessel, it may be okay, provided that it's one of the vessels of a temple, not, you know, you didn't bring just, you know, your your cup, your jug 
from your house, it has to be one of the official sanctioned temple vessels. In fact, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, used a special gold vessel for washing hands and feet, which he did 10 times over the course of the day. Now, the mitzvah is not to stick your hands in the water, but to have a drip on your hands. And there are all kinds of regulations, as you would expect. For example, what kind of water is suitable? How much water has to be in the laver at a minimum? What happens, again, if it is left overnight? Hence the need for the machine. Now, as we mentioned earlier, today we only have a mitzvah of washing our hands, which is akin to this mitzvah. But if you look at the sources, it's taken very seriously. For example, the Talmud tells us in the book of Sota on page 4b, as we know, you have to wash your hands before you eat bread. If someone eats bread without washing their hands, says the Talmud, it's as if they visited a prostitute. It's also clear what the connection is, but that's what the Talmud says. The Talmud continues and says, on that same page, if someone doesn't take this so seriously, washing your hands, so what doesn't really matter? Not so important. They are uprooted from the world. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 62b tells us, there are three things that cause poverty. And one of those three things is hamizalzel plantios yadaim. Someone who devalues, someone who mocks hand washing. The Talmud records a, a story that indicates just how seriously the sages took hand washing. We know during the 130s, it was a very difficult time for the Jews in Israel, living under Roman rule, very harsh Roman rule. And we know the greatest sage of the time was the great Rabbi Akiva, who was arrested for teaching Torah publicly. And the Talmud records a story of what happened when Rabbi Akiva was in prison. Every day, he was brought a little bit of water to drink and to wash his hands by his student. And one day, the guard at the prison told the student who was bringing the provisions for Rabbi Kiva, he says, well, let's slide, you bring a lot of water. I think I know what you're doing. You're pouring the water on the ground to soften the ground to plan your escape. So he takes the water and he spills out half of it. So Rebekah gets a very small amount of water. And he tells the student, don't you know that I'm, I'm old and I depend on you for my life? Why is there so little water? So he tells him the entire story. And Rebekah was presented with a problem. He only had enough water to wash his hands or to drink. And he had to make a choice what to use the water for. So Rabbi Kiva 
takes the water and washes his hands. And the student tells him, you don't have enough water to drink. Why are you using it to wash your hands? So Rekiv responded. He says, well, some of the sages, some of the sages, they rule that it's so serious to wash your hands. If you don't do it, it's like almost, it's almost like a capital crime. And therefore, I'm not taking chances. Even though I don't believe that they're actually correct, I want to respect the rulings of my colleagues. I'd rather die of thirst than transgress the opinion of my peers, of my colleagues. And he wouldn't eat anything until he washed his hands. And when the sages, the rest of the sages heard about this, they said, you know, Rekiv was very old. He was over 100 years old. And he was really weak. And nevertheless, he washed his hands. He took it seriously. And he was in prison. And he washed his hands. Imagine someone who's young, who's healthy, who's not incapacitated or incarcerated. How important is it for them to wash their hands? There's another story from that same era featured in the Midrash. There was a Jewish butcher. And the Jews were being persecuted. So this Jewish butcher pretended to not be Jewish. And he would sell in his butcher shop, he would sell kosher meat and he would sell pork. So that way he'd be he'd be saved from the from the purge of the Jews. And if, if a Jewish customer would come in, he would give him kosher meat. And if a Gentile customer would come in, he would give him the non-kosher meat. But how would he know? How would he, he determine the identity of his customers? So it was like a restaurant, apparently. And he would see if the person would wash their hands before they ate anything. He would know that this person is Jewish, the need to get the kosher meat. And if the person would not wash their hands, well, that's a mark of a non-Jew. And they could eat the pig. One day, there was a Jew who came in, didn't wash his hands. So the proprietor assumed this person was not Jewish. And he gives them the pork to eat. And they eat, and they don't make a blessing. This guy's obviously not Jewish, but he really was. So afterwards, it's time to settle the bill to pay for the check. And he says, well, it's, you know, it's 10 coins. He says, wait a minute, in the past I ate here, it was only eight coins. Why are you taking 10 from me now? He says, well, the, the meat that you just ate was pork, cost a little more. So this Jew, in the words of the Midrash, his hair stood on its ends and he got very frustrated and very agitated. He says, he said to him quietly, I'm Jewish. What do you do to me? Why'd you give me pork? So he says, well, when I saw you didn't wash your hands and you ate without a blessing, what am I supposed to think? I thought you were a Gentile. And the Midrash concludes that this teaches us that if someone doesn't wash their hands before they eat, they're at risk of being fed 
pork. The Midrash continues with a second story about the time that we wash our hands, not before we eat, but after we eat. There was a man who was eating some some kitness, which is some sort of barley, called barley, or some sort of grain product. And he finished eating, didn't wash his hands. So he goes out into the marketplace and his hands are dirty. So someone spots him and sees that his hands are covered with this grain and comes up with a very devilish trick. He goes to this guy's house and he says, your your husband asked me to come collect the jewelry. And he, he thought you wouldn't believe me so therefore he told me that the proof, the evidence that he's telling that I'm telling that I'm actually a representative of your husband is that he just ate this grain product. So this woman here is that the, this guy obviously has some inside info. <laughs> How else would he know what her husband ate for lunch? So she gives him the jewelry, and of course, the guy disappears. And sometime later the husband comes home and says, Well, where, where's the jewelry? And she responds. Well, that the gentleman that you sent, he came to collect it. What, what gentleman? I didn't send no one. And the man got angry and he struck his wife and he killed her. That story is recorded in the Midrash. And the Talmud concludes from that, that if someone doesn't wash their hands, they're really at risk of domestic disharmony and even potentially murder. I think this is our sages trying to impress upon us how seriously this requirement to wash our hands in all these various instances when we're, when we're eating beforehand, afterwards, in the morning, when we go to the bathroom, you come back from a cemetery, and it's apparent from our sages that there's a tendency for people to take this not as seriously as they ought to, and that's why we are warned about it and we have it impressed upon us so strongly. As we saw, this idea is uh, pregnant with Kabbalistic underpinnings, but regardless, I should take it very seriously. Ultimately, it stems from the original mitzvah of the Kohanim in the temple before they do any work, before they do any service, before they even enter the sanctuary to wash their hands and wash their feet. And today, we have some element of this with our hand washing. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.